If you're sitting next to a mom, go ahead and give them a hug. (laughs) Praise the Lord for our moms. Amen. Um, if you're if you're able to at some point this weekend, um, just remind your mother if if she's still around. If you're blessed to still ha- have your mom around, um, just to remind your mom that her her work as a mom, her investment of time and love and energy, is of infinite value. The work of a mom uh, it's endless, right? <laughs> and um, it's something that really, I, I believe, demonstrates the character of God in a way that uh, had we not had mothers in our lives, we would not see the fullness of God's character. Um, is Debbie still here? So Debbie has some really cool uh, stories about her mom. I'm not going to embarrass Debbie and talk all mushy of her as a mom. But um, Debbie's mom is someone that really exemplifies this, uh, this, this quality of just giving and self-sacrifice. Um, Debbie, I remember, telling, or I remember her telling me that there were times where uh, their toaster wouldn't be functioning correctly, and so all their morning toast would be burnt around the edges, actually more blackened, I guess. And um, Debbie would turn and find her mom like eating the burnt toast so that the other kids wouldn't have to have, to have the burnt toast. And, and she would say, Mom, why are you doing that? And she'd say, I like the taste. <laughs> you know? uh, she also tells me of this story where they, as a family, they visited the Statue of Liberty. And I don't know if you've ever gone there. Anyone ever been there, Statue of Liberty? Well, so there are some stairs that go all the way up to the top where you can actually look out through, through the, I think, the, the actual crown of Lady Liberty there. But um, Debbie and her three brothers, she's got three older brothers. And so Debbie, her brothers, her parents, they were all going up to the top of the, of the Statue of Liberty. And um, I actually didn't look up how many steps there are, but it was long enough where, you know, cold outside, they were no longer cold inside. And so all of their coats eventually started shedding. But along the way, guess who ends up with the coats? It's mom. And at the top of the stairs, she's just huffing and puffing away because she wants to give, to give up herself, to give up her time. And maybe the moms in here, you resonate with that. Or maybe all of us in here, we, we have these memories of our mom just giving in such a way that was inexplicable and yet uncomplaining. And there's this awesome quote that I came across in the book Adventist Home, and it says that the life of a mother is one of unceasing self-sacrifice. And so, if you're a mom, I just, again, I just want to thank you. Um, because sometimes that, that unceasing self-sacrifice goes unnoticed, unappreciated, and... Um, and as a son that has unappreciated that, I apologize to all moms on behalf <laughs> of all kids. But to me, the, the, this, this love, it, what a perfect example of the, the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Um, it's a beautiful example of, of what the life of every follower of Jesus ought to demonstrate, right? This ought to be true, not just of mothers, but this ought to be true of every follower of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself is unceasing in his giving, unceasing in his self-sacrifice. And so the question today, I want us to consider, you know, we've been talking about the starting point, and today is the starting point of where in the world does that kind of heart come from? Where does that heart to serve even come from? Like, how do we grow that? How do we discipline ourselves to think that way? Where does that love come from? And I truly believe it comes only as we come to know Jesus. It comes only as we behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away our sins. And so what I want us to do is we're going to study uh, a couple of stories, one in the Old Testament and then a couple of examples in the New Testament. But before we open up the scriptures together, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, once again, we're approaching your word and we're asking for living bread. God, we are cold. <laughs> we are um, maybe weary from the week. And uh, thinking about our mothers and thinking about uh, those close to us, you know, our emotions can be up and down and all over the spectrum here, but we recognize, God, that you are near to us. And so, as the God who is near, would you please also demonstrate yourself to be the God who is speaking, the God who is, is speaking to our hearts words of truth that will not only inform us, but transform us. Father, we're praying for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit because we know that opening up the Bible, it's not about thinking harder about this stuff. This is about you teaching us and instructing us in the way that we should go. So please, Lord, send us your Spirit. Enlighten our hearts to hear a word from the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you take a Bible with me? If, you're, if you dare to sneak out an arm from your blanket. <laughs> um, Take out a Bible. We're going to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 6, because I believe Isaiah had an experience where God was growing in his heart, a heart of service. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It's after the Psalms. So Psalms is a little bit uh, like halfway through the Bible, and so just go a little bit past that. You'll go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. If you've found it, go ahead and say amen. Amen. All right. So a little bit of Isaiah. Isaiah, he lived during the time of some heinous things going on in Israel. Uh, he was a prophet to the people of Judah. The kings of that time were not really setting good examples. Although there, there were some bright spots, the point is that during the time of Isaiah, evil had become something that was normal. Wickedness, violence, abuse of every power and relationship, that was something that, that no longer kind of raised an eyebrow. In fact, um, Ellen White in the book Prophets and Kings, as she's commenting on the time of Isaiah, she said, And in Isaiah's day, idolatry itself no longer provoked surprise. Idolatry itself just, oh, well, that's just kind of how things are. The few who remained true to God, like Isaiah, were often tempted to lose heart, and to give way to discouragement and despair. So here's the thing about Isaiah. Isaiah was sensitive to the Spirit of God. Isaiah was sensitive to the promptings of God. And when he saw all this stuff, his heart was pricked. He wanted to do something about it. And yet when he looked at the scenario, when he looked at the people around him, he thought, this is impossible. He was tempted to lose heart. He was tempted to lose heart. He, he, he was burdened with a desire to see Israel turn from their ways, but his heart shrank from the possible call that God was putting on his life. His heart shrank from that burden to be God's messenger. In fact, uh, later on in that same page, it says that in the face of such conditions, it's not surprising that when Isaiah was called to bear Judah to, excuse me, when Isaiah was called to bear to Judah God's messages of warning and reproof, he shrank from the responsibility. Have you ever been in that situation where you've had this, oh, if only I could reach out to this person 
or if only I could accomplish this in Castle Rock, or if only I could hasten Jesus coming in this way. But then you think about it some more, and you're like, that's just never going to happen. I, I remember uh, visiting Chicago, and I, I got to stay in this high-rise hotel. I just remember looking out, <clears throat> just like the masses of people walking through downtown Chicago, and thinking, Lord, how is everyone going to have a chance to hear and respond to the gospel? You have this desire to serve God. You have this desire to bless people. You have this desire to bless your coworker, your family member, to somehow lead them to Jesus, and yet you just shrink from their responsibility. You second guess, man, maybe that, that desire isn't even from God. Maybe I can't even do anything about this. Maybe you know what that's like, to shrink like Isaiah from that sense of responsibility. But what I believe in Isaiah chapter 6 is that God actually takes Isaiah's trembling heart like, ah, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I can really serve God in this way. In Isaiah chapter 6, God takes him and actually grows him to a place where he's willing to do whatever God wants. (laughs) And so let's go. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, he sees this amazing vision. Maybe you've read this before. I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says that in the year that King Isaiah died, this was not a happy time for Isaiah. Isaiah was one of Isaiah's favorite kings, okay? And so when this vacuum of, of, of leadership was, was uh, kind of felt amongst the people, Isaiah didn't know what was going to happen. Worse, the bad things were just going to get worse, he thought. But Isaiah was given this vision in the year that King Isaiah died. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah was given this assurance that even if there's no spiritual leadership in place, God is still leading his people. And in verse 2, this vision is is kind of clarified, is expanded upon some more, and it says, Above this throne, above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. Can you just let your mind imagine this stuff? This is pretty awesome. By the way, the word seraphim, I don't know, it's, it's a type of angel. The Hebrew word actually means flaming one, fiery one, all right? So that's why we call our kids cherubs, like cherubim, rather than seraphim, because we don't want them to be fire. Anyways, okay. So with two wings, he, he flew. With two wings, he covered his face. I'm sorry. With two wings, he covered his face. With two wings, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Man, imagine being in Isaiah's position. He's watching this heavenly throne room scene where even these angelic beings who are untouched by sin, they realize that in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God, they feel unworthy. They're covering themselves. They can't even bear to look. They don't feel worthy to even show their face before God. They're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Isaiah feel in all of this? Verse 4, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, verse 5, so I said, woe to me, for I am undone. And this is what the New King James says, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah was brought to this position, brought to this vision where he saw the glory and purity and holiness of the Lord God Almighty. And in light of God's holiness, guess what he saw? He saw his own unholiness. 
in the light of God's glory, Isaiah saw his own unglory. In the light of God's worthiness and holiness and purity, Isaiah saw everything he was not, and he saw it in high definition. He saw his people as a people of unclean lips. And you think of what, what Jesus says, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So when Isaiah is saying this, oh man, I'm just messed up. My, my words are messed up. He's rec- recognizing the abundance of my heart is just desperately wicked. He says, woe to me for I am ruined. I am undone. I'm cut off, he feels. All the more reason, you know, if, if Isaiah had reason to kind of look at the, the scenery of, of Judah at the time and say, man, there's no way I can serve this people. As he's seeing himself, this is just adding on top of that. I don't know if you've ever felt that, just so unworthy to even serve God because of your track record, because of your past, because of what you've done, because of this, because of that. And here Isaiah has all these excuses kind of mounting upon him. But the vision doesn't end there. God's purpose in this vision was not just to squash Isaiah's desire to serve him, but to grow a heart to serve him. So in the next few verses, let's just keep reading. From the NIV, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Can you imagine a fiery one flying to you? I mean, <laughs> and if you're feeling unworthy already, this could be, like, this could be interpreted as a movement of judgment, right? You know, <laughs> Isaiah is not quite sure what in the world is happening, but he says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Don't do it! Which he had taken with tongs from where? From the altar. This is, this is sanctuary language. The altar, this is talking about the altar of sacrifice, the altar of burnt offering. This is the altar that when people's eyes were looking, when people approached the altar, they were approaching in faith that their sin would be forgiven, that their sin would be paid for by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it keeps going in verse 7. With it, he touched my mouth, that very thing he was confessing. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I love that word, atoned. It's to make at one. Atonement is what what Isaiah is granted here. Not because he deserved it, but because the holy God longed to give it. And it's here, this live coal, this altar that points to the sacrifice of God's Son to redeem us from the very things that we felt disqualified by, the very thing that that Isaiah felt unworthy because of, is the very thing that God forgave. It's the very thing that God removed, and that was his sin. And so, it's at this point, when Isaiah has experienced an encounter with, with the sacrifice of Jesus, it's at this point when Isaiah has experienced grace, that verse 8 comes and it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And how does Isaiah respond? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Let me ask you a question. You can, you can see those words, but in your mind, what body language do you see when Isaiah is saying that? Uh, what, what tone of voice? Is it kind of one of those, Here, here am I. You know, is is it a bashful kind of thing? How is Isaiah doing this? He's probably, yeah, pick me, right? It's uh, it's like, you know, on the recess field when the kids go out and they're they're picking teams for Red Rover, Red Rover, whatever, I don't know. And and they say, you know, pick me, pick me. 
This is Isaiah. He's jumping. The Isaiah that was shrinking from the responsibility to serve God is now jumping at the, at the chance to give whatever he can, to do whatever he, he can, to say whatever God wants him to say. And so, why? What, what in the world? How, why is it that he is no longer shrinking from service? I believe it's because Isaiah beheld the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I believe it's because he had an experience of God's forgiving and saving grace. That was the game changer. Did you notice that? Here's Isaiah shrinking from the responsibility, but then God shows him himself and says, you know, this is the holy God, and he feels even more unworthy because of who he is not. But then... He experiences grace, and all of a sudden, he's willing. Take me, wherever you send me, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. So how, how did that experience of grace flip the switch for Isaiah? How does that experience of grace change everything from someone who's shrinking from responsibility to serve God to someone who longs to do whatever he can? I believe that when we experience God's grace, he removes our sin, and he removes our excuses. Amen. <laughs> the experience of God's grace actually removes, it. for Isaiah, it removed his sin. We know that. Hey, your sin is removed. Your sin is atoned for. But I believe it also removed his excuses. The sense of impossibility. Like, this is an impossible mission field. How can I do this? Well, when he experienced grace, he could conclude, well, if God can remove my sin, surely he can remove these guys' sin. You see, what God needs is not perfect messengers. He needs forgiven messengers. And now Isaiah is, oh, that excuse is removed. That sense of impossibility, that is removed. That sense of insufficiency, I, I, I got nothing to offer here, God. I'm a man of unclean lips. All of that is removed. How? As we behold the Lamb of God and experience His grace. As I was studying this story, the question was, kind of just posed to my heart and mind, Godfrey, what are your excuses? <laughs> what, what are your excuses? You sense a burden to be God's missionary in this capacity. You sense a burden to say this. You sense a burden to, to maybe do this or, or be present here or do that. What are the excuses that hold you back from serving God and blessing others? Is it the, the excuse of, I don't have time. It's just, it's just inconvenient. Or maybe it's the, it's the excuse of, I can't. I, I don't have experience. I don't have tra- I'm insufficient. Maybe it's a, more the excuse of, I really just don't want to. <laughs> I'm indifferent. I don't really have a heart for that, God. Or maybe it's the excuse of, I, Lord, you don't want me. You don't want me. You feel undeserving. But again, like we said, what God needs is not perfect missionaries. He needs forgiven missionaries. And what's beautiful about Isaiah's experience is, you know, I, I mean, the list could probably go on. We could probably talk about dozens and dozens of excuses that we share before God that keep us from fulfilling, basically from fulfilling our life purpose. We can think of many, many excuses. Maybe it's ignorance. I, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, here's the thing. For Isaiah, God brought him to the foot of the cross in order to remove those excuses. And I wonder, when we are brought to Calvary, when we are brought to Calvary, when you look upon Jesus giving himself, all of himself, being all in for you, when you look upon that, how much weight do your excuses really have? Right? 
in the light of Calvary's cross, how much, how much weight do our excuses of indifference, of ignorance, of, of insufficiency, whatever, how much weight do those excuses really have? I, for Isaiah, he realized nothing. That, that doesn't matter anymore. If God can forgive me, then surely he can do that for others. Here am I. Here am I. Send me. You see, when Isaiah experienced Calvary's cross, his excuses no longer had any weight. See, Isaiah's unreserved availability to God was evidence of a heart that is saved by grace. That's evidence. It's a manifestation. When your heart has been saved by grace, that's why in the book Steps to Christ, she talks about like, hey, when someone has had a genuine conversion, their first response is to tell somebody. (laughs) Their first response is to share that with somebody. Why? Because being saved by grace manifests itself in service toward others. Being saved by the God who gave himself manifests itself in a life of giving ourselves for others. Isaiah's unreserved availability to God was evidence of a heart that was saved by grace. And I wonder if when we are reserved in our availability to God, when we have these hang-ups, these hesitations, I wonder if that's evidence of our need for more grace. Do you follow that? If you ever start kind of self-doubting and just kind of like, man, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I can't, maybe I, someone, there's someone else better for that, I don't know. Maybe that should trigger in our hearts and minds, you know what, I need to go back to the cross and experience more of God's grace. Because there God can remove the sin that holds us back, but he can also remove the excuses that hold us back. What I love is um, when Paul takes up this theme. Actually, go with me there. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, if there was anyone who had a poor track record, it was Paul. I mean, he, he talks about having a, a, a kind of like a spotless track record in terms of the Jewish uh, laws and, and regulations and stuff like that. But he himself called himself the chief of sinners. He knew that he had racked up some debt by going against the will of God. But in Ephesians chapter 2, he waxes eloquent about the saving grace of God and how God saves us not by our works, not by our track record, not by our performance or merit or deserving or undeserving. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it's beautiful. And I, I just want to look at this in verse 10. He, he, he really just kind of lays it out. Hey, this is our life calling. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Ephesians chapter 2, all right? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. I love this. It says this. It says, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. As though like uh, God is this craftsman and he's just kind of doing this work of art. Actually, the Greek word there is poema. It's kind of where we get the word poem. So it's something that he labors over and expresses his beauty through. That's you and me. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I really believe that God has a life calling, a life purpose for each and every one of us. He is shaping you, just like a a, a writer would be kind of pouring over the words of a poem, just like a sculptor would be tenderly and delicately shaping his sculpture. He is shaping each and every one of us for good works. It says, for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't just kind of lay out this calling saying, hey, you're called for service. Hey, you're called to do this. You're called to do that. 
he tells us where the capacity to fulfill this comes from. Even the desire to fulfill this comes from. And it comes out of grace. Again, just looking a few verses earlier, it says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And going straight into the next sentence, For we are his workmanship. Your ability, my ability, to fulfill the calling that God has put on our hearts and, and lives is not by trying harder, but it's by being saved by grace. Our capacity to fulfill that calling, our desire and eagerness to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand, it comes only after having been saved by grace first. It comes only after having had an encounter with Jesus at the cross by looking to Jesus on Calvary. So maybe you're desiring, man, I'm just not really feeling like I'm contributing. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm actually doing what God wants me to do. Maybe you have this gnawing ache that, man, you know what? God wants me to do this, but I'm not exactly sure how to do it. I don't even feel ready to do it. When God saves you by grace, he'll make you ready. He'll make you his workmanship. It only happens as we're saved through his grace. I want to look at the example of Peter because Peter is someone who really understood this. Peter was someone who denied Jesus three times over, right? And no, not, not in a quiet way. It was, it was definitely in a way that was noticeable, not just to his, his friends, but to everyone else around him. Peter was someone who desired to serve God. But because of his three times over denial, he felt like he was completely disqualified and cut off, right? The brash, self-confident disciple basically proved himself a failure that night. Proved himself untrustworthy of the commission of God. But before his betrayal, Jesus was merciful to him. Jesus was fully aware of what was kind of coming down the pike for Peter. And Jesus says to his disciple, he says in, in Luke 22, verse 32, this is the King James, he says, but I have prayed for thee. I love that. Do you know that Jesus prays for you? Even though he knows the route that you're going to take, even though he knows that you're, you're, you're choosing rebellion, you're choosing to, uh, to continue to rely on self. He says, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And notice this part. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus was fully aware of the trajectory that Peter was headed, and yet he knew that he was going to still use Peter to strengthen his brothers. He was still going to use the failure to be a minister to others. What? How? When? According to this, when thou art converted. Where does conversion come from? I mean, we talked about this two weeks ago when we talked about Nicodemus being born again, things like that. It only happens as we see Jesus lifted up. It only happens as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how conversion comes. See, the co when you're converted, you're going to experience this conversion, Peter. You're going to experience what grace is all about. And when you've experienced grace, that's when you're fitted for service. That's when. That's when. So we're talking about the starting point over the last few weeks. The starting point is seeking God. It starts with we behold the Lamb. Right? It doesn't start with the kingdom. It starts with the cross. Last week, we talked about the, the starting point for, for sharing life. It only starts as we behold the Lamb. As we are broken by grace ourselves, then we can extend grace to others. And in the same way, the, only, the starting point for serving God, 
It starts as we behold the Lamb, as we behold saving grace. For Peter, that's what it took. It took him being broken by his own failure and then being embraced by God's grace in order for him to be fitted for service. In John 21, the story is told where, uh, where <clears throat> Jesus, in his uh, already resurrected form, he, he approaches the Sea of Galilee where Peter and a few other of his buddies have gone back fishing. They've kind of said, you know what, I, I don't know. I just need to go back to what's familiar, right? John 21, you can turn there with me. John 21, the story is told there. And Jesus comes to the shore and asks if they've found any fish. And just like at the beginning of their discipleship journey, they had to make that confession. Uh, we've worked all night. We didn't catch anything, right? And in John 21, Jesus calls them over, says, come on, eat, some, uh, eat, eat breakfast with me. They actually are able to catch fish because of Jesus' word. They bring all that boatload of fish over. They join Jesus on the shore over a campfire, and they're eating breakfast with Jesus. And in verse 15, in verse 15, Jesus addresses the failure. Jesus addresses the one who totally disqualified himself from service. In verse 15, the Bible says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you, what are the next three words? Love me more. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? He said to him. And then Peter's response, Yes, Lord, you know that what? You know that I love you. I love this because, uh, you know, Jesus kind of gave him an open door to be boastful. Do you love me more than these guys love me? Right? But then Peter doesn't respond that way. He says, Lord, you know. He's, he responds in a humble way, a contrite way. He's not boastful anymore. He's not, he's not self-confident anymore. You, you, you know, Lord. You know that I love you. And then notice what Jesus says right in response. He said to him, tend my sheep. Or maybe your version says, feed my sheep. Again, Jesus is giving this failure an opportunity to serve him. How? Why? What, what happened? What made Peter from uh, being disqualified uh, just outside the, the courthouse of Pilate what, 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 what made Peter from being disqualified to now being fitted for service? I believe in that the span of those few days, Peter beheld the Savior. He saw the cross. He saw Jesus, the one who was his substitute. And then now he's actually having breakfast with the one who, in spite of his failure, still wants to embrace him and accept him. Je Jesus was giving Peter grace and as a result of that grace, when he was converted, he could now strengthen his brethren. The commission to feed lambs and sheep was something that Peter was especially qualified for. I mean, you think about that. Feeding sheep, feeding lambs, uh, th that, that takes a tender touch, right? And Peter wasn't ready to give a tender touch until he knew the tenderness of his Savior, personally, experientially. And that, having been broken by his own failure and having been healed by the grace of Jesus, after having been converted and after having experienced grace, that's when Peter was fitted to serve the Lord. What if, what if Peter had gone about his commission to strengthen his brethren, to feed sheep, without having experienced grace first? Without having experienced the cross first? Can you imagine Peter kind of being his kind of rough 
brash self and trying to correct lambs that needed correcting, so to speak, trying to correct the brethren uh, in, in a kind of a outspoken, rebuking sort of way. Man, if Peter had been left to that option, to that alternative, to, fill his, uh, to fulfill his responsibility unbroken, <clears throat> I believe his service probably would have been more about self than the Savior. And I think that's what, uh, man, that, that I think is the, ta- the danger that we get into, that if we don't, if we don't start at the cross, all our service becomes self-serving in the end. Follow that. If we don't start at the cross, all of our service for Jesus is either a try, it's, it's either an attempt to obtain God's favor or just to exalt ourselves in the process. All of our service, if we are not broken by grace, we're either trying to save ourselves, prove ourselves, earn God's favor, or earn our salvation. So when we don't start at the cross, and we persist in serving God, then all that service is really not service for God. It's, it's self-serving in the end. That's why I think the essential quality uh, there in John twenty-one fifteen, that question, do you love me? Do you love me? It's not about doing it in order for God to love him. Jesus already demonstrated that he, he was loved by God. The essential qualification in service is, do you love me? The essential qualification is not X number of years at the seminary. The essential quality, qualification for service is, is not X number of years as being uh, you know, a church member. The essential quality is not much, how much training you have or how, how much of a perfect life you have. The essential qualification is, do you love me? And Paul knew that, 1 Corinthians 13. Hey, I may speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have not love, I'm only a, a symbol, right? A gong, making no use whatsoever. To serve without love is, is meaningless. To serve without love is useless, and it probably does more harm than good, right? And that's why the essential qualification is love. But where does that love come from? Love for Christ must be what we start with, and that only comes as we're changed by God's love in the first place. It comes only as we are gripped by grace. I love that. It comes only as we are gripped by grace. So the question today is, well, maybe a preliminary question. Do you long to serve God? And if you do, the, the first question is, have you been gripped by God's love for you? Have you been saved by grace? <clears throat> There's a story of George Muller. I'm actually not quite sure how best to say his name. It's a German name. George Muller. Muller? Muller? Mueller? Mueller? Anyways, I I always thought it was Mueller, but then I saw this spelling and I I was thrown off. (laughs) George Muller lived in the 1800s, from Germany, was a missionary to England. Maybe you know his story a little bit. He actually, in his, I think he was just in his 30s. He was, uh, he was a minister, he was an evangelist, but in his 30s, he had this heart burden to do something for the orphans in Bristol, England. The orphans uh, were really, there was no like social service to, to take care of the orphans back then. It, it wasn't really a common thing. And so orphans, little kids, just sleeping on the streets, fending for themselves, not sure what to do. In fact, one documentary calls George Muller, it's called Robber of the Cruel Streets. Because George Muller picked those kids off the street and, and gave them food, gave them shelter, gave them a Christian education. It was beautiful. And what's awesome about his story, I mean, there are a lot of awesome things about his story, but it was as a result of prayer. He, he wasn't a rich man. 
He, he didn't have very much resources or lots of connections to people. But through prayer, he made a commitment that he would never let anyone know of his financial needs in this operation. He would ne- not uh, you know, publicize it. He wouldn't put it in a paper anywhere. He wouldn't even talk about it uh, amongst people. When people would ask, hey, do you need some money? He wouldn't say, he wouldn't respond with any specificity. His goal was to rely only on prayer and to let God be the one to demonstrate that he is faithful to provide. Anyway, it's really awesome. So over the course of his, his lifetime, he actually cared for personally, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. And eventually, as the institution kind of grew and grew, I think there were 117 schools that were established and over 180,000 uh, orphans cared for and given a Christian education. And actually, people were accusing uh, George Muller of upsetting the social status of things because the kids were getting an education that were beyond their status. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Anyways, so George Muller, this, this heart of gold, this heart for these kids, you know, this heart of service, but he wasn't always like that. I don't know if you know his story. He wasn't always like that. When George Mueller was just 10 years old, he started stealing from his father. And his father actually worked for the government, and so he was stealing government money from his father. In fact, um, yeah, in his teen years, he was known as a profligate. Uh, one documentary calls him a, a just, yeah, well, just sexually immoral. He, he was a thief. He just was living a life that was a total rebellion against his father's wishes and against his heavenly father's wishes. But there is something uh, in his biography, or one of his biographies, where he says what all, th- there was a turning point in his life, and he was realizing it wasn't because of the correction of his father, it wasn't because he was sent to this boarding school or whatever, but it says, what all the exhortations and precepts of my father, and what others could not affect, what all my own resolutions could not bring about, I was enabled to do, constrained by the love of Jesus. I love that. That word constrained means compelled, motivated, not restrained, but uh, constrained by the love of Jesus. That was his turning point. He encountered, um, actually, it was while he was studying theology, even though he was living this debased life, he was studying for the ministry. Um, He actually met this guy who invited him to a home Bible study group. And it was at that home Bible study group that he, as, as people were reading scriptures and kind of sharing their hearts and stuff, he realized, wow, these people have something. And one documentary puts it this way. It says that he now knew, as a result of encountering these Christians who had been saved by grace, he said, he now knew the joy and relief of being what? Forgiven. He now knew the joy and relief of being forgiven and what it really meant to trust in Christ. For him, in his teen years, this was what turned him around. And as a result of encountering this kind of forgiveness, having the relief, the joy of being forgiven, that's what motivated him to want to share even more, to become a missionary of service. And now we talk about George Mueller. Now we talk about him as, man, I think, uh, you know, his, his uh, just dependence on prayer for financial resources, for physical resources, I think there were donations that totaled $2 million that actually came in over his lifetime into that orphanage. But you think about that. That was in the 1800s. Two million, it's like 80, 180 million, maybe 200 million plus dollars today that came in all as a result of prayer. And his ministry, his life, his legacy has left an impact upon the Christian church. And it all started with knowing the joy and relief of being forgiven. Peter, 
He was used by God to kickstart the early church, and his letters are still an inspiration to believers today, and it all started as he beheld the love of God on Calvary. Isaiah, his prophecies were probably the most clear regarding the mission of the Messiah. His prophecies speak down through the ages, pointing out to who Jesus is. And how is Isaiah able to do that? How is Isaiah able to lead us to Jesus? Because he himself was led to Jesus. Man, God has a huge calling for each and every one of us. God has a calling for us as a church. And it's all going to start, being able to fulfill that is not going to start by just saying, all right, this is it. Who's with me? No, that's not how it goes. It starts as we are saved by grace, as we come to the foot of the cross. So a simple question as we just kind of wrap this up is, man, will we come to the foot of the cross? You know, from here on, you know, this is kind of our starting point. This is the end of our starting point series and stuff, but Man, as we continue to, to move and operate as a church, as we go out and deliver flowers today as a church, you know, as we share the gospel, as we give Bible studies, as we fulfill our life calling as a church, but also as individuals, as we seek to be a witness, as we seek to be a blessing to others. I don't just want to challenge you to do this. Do more. Volunteer here. Vol- you know, I'm, my challenge, my appeal is simply this. Come to Jesus. If you haven't, why wait? And every single day, this is why Paul says, I die daily. He's not being morbid. He's saying, I need grace daily to put self to death, to look to Jesus. <clears throat> Maybe you're thinking, I, I still don't have it. I've got excuse after excuse. My past won't recommend me. Again, God is not looking for perfect missionaries. He's looking for forgiven missionaries. So, Will you? I'm not saying, will you go out and knock on every single door? That would be awesome. Let's do it. But no. Will you be embraced by God's saving grace today? And when you are, watch yourself because you're going to be jumping out of your seat. Right? Here am I. Send me. So, will you be saved by grace? I'm going to invite our song team up. We're going to sing just a song in response marvelous grace. And if it's your desire to be a recipient of God's grace so that you can be an extender of God's grace, would you stand with us as we sing? Let's sing this together. Marvelous grace.